value text to function as an important means of appropriating, inverting, and challenging dominant means of representation in colonial ideologies. Um, we'd like to, let's say, challenge the idea of architecture, which was used as a colonial practice by Europeans as they colonized the world. Hence, not only do we want to think this morning about the space of black art in terms of display, um, such as museums and galleries, um, which have historically you know, have troubled histories, such as the National Ga Gallery uh, uh, in uh, Bulalawo. Um, but perhaps we can think about uh, the space of black production and black art in terms of everyday circumstances and in terms of the, the public realm for which blacks have had to appropriate in order to establish our subjectivity. So for this discussion this morning, uh, I am joined by um, two very esteemed colleagues, Emmanuel Admasu, and we'll have uh, brief presentations and then we'll come together for uh, discussion and conversation um, uh, with you, the audience. Um, Emmanuel is a founding partner of ADWO, um, architects and an assistant professor at the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, and uh, Emmanuel has also taught at the Columbia University Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. Um, through his design practice, research, and teaching, Emmanuel is engaged in investigating the opportunities and problems associated with the diasporic condition. In particular, um, he is committed to research focusing on examining the constructed identities of urban markets in East Africa. Um, Emmanuel completed his Bachelor of Architecture at the Southern Polytechnic State University, followed by a Master of Advanced Architectural Design and Advanced Architectural Research at Columbia. Uh, Mabel O. Wilson is the Nancy and George E. Rupp Professor of Architecture and also um, a Director of the Global Africa Lab at, at the Columbia University. Um, she is um, also a professor in African-American and African Diasporic Studies um, at Columbia, where she's an associate director uh, of the Institute for Research in African-American Studies. Um, she's authored, Begin with the Past, Building the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, and Negro Building African-Americans in the World of Fairs and Museums, and is currently completing the manuscript, Building Race and Nation, How Slavery and Dispossession Shaped America's civic architecture. Um, so join me in welcoming Emmanuel Admasu and Mabel Wilson. And I think we'll start with we'll start with Emmanuel. So I think, uh, hello and thanks for coming uh, so early on a Sunday morning. And also thanks to uh, Black Chalk and company uh, for the invite and the provocative um, curatorial statement. Um, we were asked to speak about architecture as um, a framing device. And I'll try to basically do that by using uh, some current research and design work that we're uh, doing in our practice. Um, Needless to say, I think uh, I would be lying if I wasn't uh, honest about the fact that it's very intimidating to speak with two people I deeply admire, uh, Mabel Wilson and Mario Gooden. Uh, so I'll try to basically give you a brief sketch of what we're working on currently. Um, 
as stated uh, in the introduction, I, uh, I am from uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, and uh, these guys are native to the mountains of Ethiopia. Um, and my partner, Jen Wood, is uh, from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we met and started our practice in New York City, so the practice feels something like this. Um, and uh, we are currently based in Providence, but most of our projects are in... Uh, oh, it's not clicking. Most of our projects are in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Um, so in other words, we're basically committed to uh, research and design uh, across geopolitical uh, boundaries. Um, for the sake of brevity and to address some of the questions posed by the curatorial statement, um, I'm going to focus on uh, a research project called Two Marcus that we're currently working on. Uh, we have been collaborating with an outstanding group of um, artists, architects, and academics across. So I'll be jumping back and forth between the two cities and uh, two marketplaces, Carioco and Mercato, in the presentation. Um, and I think it's, it's important to note that what you'll be seeing today uh, is the latest experiment in trying to represent the knowledge that we've been gathering over the past few years. An earlier iteration of it is actually currently being projected in the ramp uh, leading up to the second floor. It was a collaboration with animation artist uh, Ezra Wube uh, to produce a stop motion animation of Mercato. Um, and more recently, we produced a large scale uh, piece of tapestry for uh, Mpo Matsipa's uh, African Mobilities exhibition in Munich. Uh, in this case, we were really trying to uh, dissect or examine the temporalities of materials used to actually construct uh, the marketplace. Um, contemporary architectural discourse um, on, Af on the African continent tends to either celebrate mid-century uh, European intervention, i.e. African modernism, uh, or exoticize notions of quote-unquote uh, informality. Um, and we, we are addressing the first is the complete lack of engagement with uh, academics and designers on and of the continent. Uh, so in, in addition to co actually collaborating with people based in the two cities, it was important for us to foreground uh, the scholars, architects, and artists that this project is in conversation with. Um, so in a way, the intervention really starts at the bibliography. Um, decolonizing the way knowledge production and visibility operates on the continent. Um, and the, the second more obvious cliche, I mean, there are endless cliches, obviously, but uh, the second cliche is the privileged aerial perspective, uh, otherwise known as the helicopter view. Uh, this view effectively flattens complexity and represents the city uh, as a monolithic corrugated roofscape, and in turn is seen as an extension of the colonial gaze. Uh, inversely, we, we are interested in analyzing buildings and urban formations uh, in their own mutable terms, uh, giving equal importance to material interventions introduced by architects and non-architects um, and developed against and outside of oppressive regimes. Uh, the, the project was heavily influenced by Harry Gruba's definition of animist materialism uh, as a continual re-enchantment of the world or let's say the superimposition of magical narratives on everyday objects. Uh, and we are interested in uh, representational techniques that work against this Darwinian 
linear evolution towards a Western modernity. Um, and for me, uh, in particular, teaching within uh, um, an architecture department at a school that is primarily known uh, as an art school, um, it has made me acutely aware of the fact that, uh, as a discipline, we're several decades behind, uh, especially uh, art history, when it comes to uh, an engagement with post-colonial theory. Um, so in other words, knowledge systems outside of Europe and North America. So this, this project, Whereas Africa, was a collaboration with my colleague, Anita Bateman, who's a curator and art historian. And it was an attempt to uh, frame a set of conversations um, with artists, uh, architects, um, academics who are actively representing the continent, both within and outside its geopolitical boundaries. Um, and it has been designed to cultivate an inherently cross-disciplinary um, conversation. I know Salome was here yesterday, uh, so she was one of our guests for an event uh, in early April uh, that was held at RISD. And it's a multi-year project that is continuing to deal with this friction between identity and geography. Um, and we're extending it into a possible publication, but also another event in Dar es Salaam sometime next year. So um, furthering the provocation of a nonlinear urban history in Africa, we have been analyzing specific uh, urban interventions, uh, like the quote-unquote uh, neutral zone in Dar es Salaam, and this inaccessible park um, is a buffer that enforces and spatializes racial segregation uh, designed by the German colonial regime and emplaced by the British as a sanitary. And wh what was really fascinating to us is that this park is basically inaccessible uh, currently in Dar es Salaam. And 50 years after independence, it continues to divide uh, the city. Um, when we shift over to uh, Mercato, the Italian occupation of Addis Ababa lasted only five years. Therefore, the colonial master plan is not really uh, perceptible, except for Mercato, where you can begin to understand the gridded streets and these uh, leftover Italian colonnade buildings. Um, and as the only country in Africa that's never been colonized, the capital city of Addis, uh, I mean, of Ethiopia, uh, in some ways can be defined through infrastructures of defense. Um, the construction sites in Mercato uh, are actually uh, fortified at their base uh, with rings of merchant stalls that are abbreviated versions of the stalls that came before and that will come after within these new uh, malls. Uh, the colonial uh, fragmentation of the city of Dar es Salaam is registered at the scale of the city, uh, or let's say the city block in Karyako. So each block is composed of multiple plots uh, that are individually owned, demonstrating a negotiation between the single family Swahili homes that are slowly being converted into retail spaces and these uh, larger residential towers that over the past 10 years have been converted into storage facilities uh, for the stores on the ground floor. Um, and in a way, this, this, th a lot of these changes are coming from the operational demands of the market itself. Um, and I think you can begin to see the grain of the Swahili home embedded even within these condo towers. Um, but unlike uh, Karyoko and uh, Mercato, each block is owned by large cooperatives of up to 40 merchants and their families. And the buildings are vertical multiplications of the single-story stalls that preceded them. Um, 
And these collect this collective ownership model uh, was initiated as a strategic response to a Malaysian developer who was in negotiation with the Ethiopian government to buy out the whole market and basically displace the merchants uh, and convert it into one of those generic uh, central business uh, district zones. But instead, the merchants started forming cooperatives uh, and uh, establishing a set of covert and overt negotiations with city officials and the government. And they basically started building the malls themselves. Um, and it was kind of an incredible spatial intervention that was imposed by someone who has been uh, operating on that land. And it's a very interesting way of reclaiming ownership of the land itself. Um, the nine by nine uh, meter grid of the coconut farm established by Sultan uh, Majid bin Said of Zanzibar in uh, 1862 it really initiated a regime of measurability on Dar es Salaam. So the land, uh, its people, and its resources have since been allotted into quantifiable units. Um, and the coconut shamba eventually transmutes into single family Swahili homes, uh, which is a typology defined by six equal rooms uh, with a central hallway. And more recently, uh, kind of the typical uh, asymmetrical um, distribution of land rights and wealth is transforming this neighborhood from an exclusively African residential zone into a commercial space that is shared by uh, South Asian and um, Arab families. Uh, the imperial uh, capital of Ethiopia has always been nomadic, moving to new landscapes when juniper wood for fire and construction was depleted. But compared to the, the indigenous juniper uh, tree, the eucalyptus is a fast-growing species, uh, which is why it was imported from Australia in 1898, uh, allowing Empress Aitu and Emperor Menelik to basically formalize a permanent capital uh, around uh, their compound, which is now known as Addis Ababa. Uh, and a nodal network of houses for generals and lieutenants radiate out uh, from the royal compound on adjacent hilltops. Uh, militarizing uh, the topography as a way to defend the empire against colonial invasion. Uh, the compound typology continues to define the urban form of Addis. Uh, we have recently been uh, examining, examining the genealogy of the compound house uh, in response to a single family home that we're designing in the city. And we're specifically interested, in, uh, this basically erases any hierarchy uh, from this uh, residential type. Uh, this basically erases any hierarchy that might have existed between indoor and outdoor rooms uh, and really takes advantage of the mild climate, climate uh, experienced in Addis throughout the year. So this is uh, an initial view of a house that we're currently working on in a neighborhood called uh, Old Airport uh, in Addis. The Karyaku Market Hall, uh, which is the anchor of the neighborhood uh, is, uh, in Dar es Salaam, is an open-air structure shaded by 24 concrete columns, which act as funnels, and each uh, spans approximately 15 meters. And they harvest rain and facilitate passive cooling for the shops uh, below. And I think the Market Hall is kind of an animist enactment of uh, Julius Nerere's political philosophy of Ujamaa, which is uh, basically promoting egalitarianism, socialism, and self-reliance. And it was designed by a Tanganyikan architect called Beta Amuli. 
And uh, the market hall canopy recalls the, the coconut trees under which markets were held in the past. When, when we shift to Mercato, uh, there is an interesting friction between uh, a set of structures that were designed at the very end of Haile Selassie's feudalist regime. Uh, this particular building was designed by a wealthy businessman near the end of Haile Selassie's regime. But it was eventually built by uh, the, the Derg, uh, the socialist uh, military junta. And uh, right opposite from it, bookending kind of a parking lot, is uh, one of the newer malls with these misaligned windows. And what's really fascinating about both of these structures is just the instability of architectural symbols, where a structure that was designed to represent socialism eventually ends up representing and housing uh, a certain form of neoliberalism. Um, I, I think, I mean, the, the key thing with, with a lot of these structures is to make sure that we understand uh, each one of them as a reflexive spaces that are simultaneously recreating their past, but also uh, prepossessing their futures. The interstitial spaces resulting from that coconut grid that I showed earlier uh, are now being reinscribed by the current president, President John Magafuli's legitimization of street traders. Uh, and this, this particular shift in policy is transforming the pedestrian experience within uh, Karyoko. Inversely, in, in Mercato, the individual shops are basically being cons uh, consolidated into these mega blocks and malls. And the mall typology is continuing to evolve, where now there are a set of entertainment uh, zones on the top floor, housing bars and arcades, et cetera, and attracting people to the very top. Uh, but the, the central atrium also anchors a set of retail shops with uh, both indoor and outdoor uh, balconies. Dar es Salaam's proximity to the Indian Ocean has rendered it valuable and therefore vulnerable to exploitative imperialist regimes. Um, basically, multiple types of boats, ships, and tankers are employed in a choreographed process of extraction, um, taking resources and labor from the hinterlands of East Africa across the ocean, both multiple cultural hybrids. And this is kind of a view of the bay uh, leading out to Zanzibar. In uh, Mercato, a construction site encircled by panels of brightly painted uh, green and yellow corrugated tin uh, denote a construction site. Um, and the fence is interrupted by this sign for the CGCOC group, uh, which is a Chinese-owned uh, Belt and Road Initiative contractor uh, whose revenue is greatly derived from building Ethiopian roads. And, um, the sign uh, lays claim to an emerging uh, structure looming behind the fence uh, that bisects the two buildings of Adarash built during uh, Haile Selassie's regime. And this pale concrete frame foreshadows a future bus terminal, but also a potential future for a country uh, whose uh, transportation infrastructure is almost exclusively being built by the Chinese government. So, I mean, markets are obviously composed of objects, uh, spaces, and uh, persons, and practices. Um, as dynamic collective ritualistic sites, they challenge notions of fixity 
and a singular vantage point. Um, and these three, t these timescapes are comprised of several views and time frames, giving equal uh, weight to dynamic and static elements of the market by attempting to acknowledge multiple subjectivities. So at the end, Hulat uh, Gabayawich to markets, Masako Mawili, is really a project that attempts to collapse multiple histories and artifacts uh, into a relationally ascribed constellation um, as a means to circumvent an imperializing grand uh, narrative. Um, that, that is all I have. Also, want to um, thank uh, Tanashi and Nancy for the invitation um, to 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 join um, Emmanuel and Mario today. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I re think really think through a number of really um, important critical issues around architecture. Um, but I, I absolutely agree with Emmanuel and and Mario that architecture, in and of itself, is a very problematic discipline. I think you know, it takes ways. And we often don't think about it because it's ubiquitous, but it actually does become an agent of division, exploitation. And so I think finding other modalities of imagining space, understanding how, what black space might be, you know, and I, and I think Emmanuel's work is certainly that. And the work Mario's been doing um, encapsulates those investigations and also those imaginations. So, um, so I wanted to talk today um, in part about what I um, what I kind of gathered, I read the um, the Ivan um, Vera story. Um, Why don't you carve animals? Um, which has to do with in in you know in the context of great challenges, um, particularly at the moment in which he was writing it in a, in a segregated Rhodesia in an African-only hospital. Like, what is the role of the artist, and what is really the role of imagination in terms of the physicality of what one makes? Um, and and I think how one makes space and how one builds is also a site for those imaginaries. Um, and so, art, architecture, and the imagination can be very powerful tools in the face of anti-black racism, um, precisely because they allow you to imagine things like freedom and what they might mean, unfettered from um, the, the restrictions that we all um, recognize and live with. Um, so I wanted to um, talk about a project that I worked on um, uh, with a friend and colleague, Bryony Roberts, called Marching On, um, and to sort of think about like what is the role of the imagination as it begins to inhabit the historical past. Um, and how history can also be an agent um, to sort of think through, perform um, possibilities. Um, I work um, uh, as, um, it's hard to say <laughs> what I do, but my studio is called Studio Anne precisely because I'm not just <coughs> an architectural designer, but I'm a historian. I do curatorial work, artwork, um, 
and now with Marching On, performance, and they all become sort of platforms to think through these questions, but I've always been interested in the sort of question of the past and how we understand it in the now as a context for, for the future. And I wrote a book called Negro Building, and in that book, um, I look at world's fairs, and I became interested in the fairs precisely because there were spaces in the US for blacks to build out spaces that are, we're thinking about the past, um, Carter G. Woodson and um, really um, well-known people um, were involved, A. Philip Randolph, Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Well, I mean, they were all Booker T. Washington, but also W.E.B. Du Bois used these spaces as platforms to both think about that present, develop a historical consciousness in the moment to imagine like what is that future. Um, and so Du Bois did this crazy thing in New York in 1913 called the Temple of Beauty. He commissioned uh, Vertner Tandy um, and his partner to do this temple um, in a space um, for a, a exposition around the 50th anniversary of emancipation. And as you could see, it's like totally pro-black. Pro um, it's like this new, um, I call it a neo-Nubian Egyptian temple. And inside were artwork. So he curated this art project. But what was also amazing about it is that he writes this pageant um, that is performed in that space. And it's like, this is, these are the gifts that black people have brought to the world, right? So he's imagining this radical black nationalist consciousness in this space through performance, through the creation of these temporary spaces. And this temporary spaces and the expositions were critical precisely because Jim Crow segregation would not allow black people to occupy space or even own space in any significant way after emancipation. So, um, the way I looked at the, the expositions were that they were a precursor to the black museum movement and how we end up with the National African American Museum on the, on the mall. But these temporary spaces were really imaginative, inventive, and these collaborations with writers and performers and artists and architects and, and thinkers and activists like, like Du Bois, Du Bois and others. Pageants were kind of crazy because they were casts of thousands uh, in this period, most people don't realize how often these things happened. Um, they, were, um, they were typically performed in cities, and so they were huge, and they take up huge amounts of space, so they start to literally redesign cities, the City Beautiful Movement, um, which was a beautification project to, to make cities through neoclassical architecture and modern technological inventions like roadways and electrification into these of, of immigrants and blacks, um, precisely because they were seen as disruptive in those spaces. So pageants in mainstream became a way of absorbing immigrants in particular into an American consciousness as a civic building project. So Du Bois kind of co-ops this and says, no, the civic space I want is a kind of pan-African nationalism. And so he does this performance with a thousand people in New York and Philadelphia and Los Angeles as this kind of civic building project. So it's kind of very much in this kind of everyday. It's, these are not professional performers. These are just folks from the community who do these performances. But the scale and the space that's created is quite interesting. And the Star of Ethiopia references Menelik, actually, um, at the turn of the, the, the 20th century as a kind of imaginary of Africa, right? And so he's trying to build this sort of black nationalist pan-African solidarity through performance, which is, which is very interesting, um, as a way of claiming space, at least temporarily. 
so I think um, the, the, the question of the pageant, um, but also one could say that parades in this moment in the early 20th century um, become kind of modalities of protest. Um, and so uh, that understanding, particularly in marching on, uh, we were interested in um, the parade and the ways in which the parade has been a means of, of, of blacks in the United States for, for claiming public space. Um, and so we worked with a really amazing group. It was commissioned by the Storefront for Art and Architecture here, um, and we performed it as part of Performa 17 about a year, a little over a year ago. Um, and we found a really great group of collaborators, the Marching Cobras, who are New York-based, um, and um, perform all over the city, but actually the country and now the world. Um, they were fantastic. They, are, they range from age five up to the early 20s, because some, some of the participants come back. And they really do address at-risk youth. Um, and it becomes a kind of after-school community in which the students participate. They learn instruments, they learn dance, um, and then they perform regularly around the city and around the country. Um, and so here are the Marching Cobras in Harlem. So some of you probably already know them or have seen them perform. Uh, but here's, they're performing, this is the dance line, it's a drum line and dance line. They're performing in a parade in Westport, Connecticut. Um, so we um, worked with them directly with the, two, two, uh, with the director and the uh, choreographer um, and wanted to think about the history of marching. So one of the things we focused on was the silent parade um, that happened um, in July of 1917. This was also in part orchestrated by Du Bois as a protest against lynching. Um, so as you could see, women, children, men marched silently down Fifth Avenue to protest um, the rise of lynching um, in, in, in the, the American South. Um, and it was silent. All you heard was a drum beat um, and people moved um, through the city. So it was a very, very powerful way of using the parade as protest. The, at that same moment um, were the Harlem Hellfighters. They also had one of the largest parades in city history uh, at that time. They returned from fighting in Europe. They fought valiantly in France in 1919. Um, and they were one of the first regiments to actually return. It was very unusual to have a full black reg regiment um, at that moment, but they were formed when fought in World War I of James Reese. He's the guy, you know, with his hat tipped just slightly. Um, and uh, they brought, you know, one of the ways in which jazz came to Europe was actually through the Hellfighters because they had a, as part of the regiment was a marching band and they, they played jazz. Um, so they were very, very well known in Europe at that time. So it was a significant parade in those periods um, in which they took over the city. Um, and I just want to go back and say, uh, this is an, another one of the earliest parades of blacks in New York City and in the United States, which was a, a group um, who would join a regiment of colored troops uh, fighting for the Union in the Civil War. And they were actually allowed to march around uh, Union Square uh, in 1863. Um, so the military the, um, became an avenue um, and the bands and the parade became an avenue not only of civic expression but of protest um, for African Americans. So it's a way of claiming public space, um, occupying public space through bodies, through sound, through performance, um, 
that we became very much interested in. Other, other things we sort of talked about with uh, the Cobras for them to sort of think about their own medium um, of performance was like Mar Marcus Garvey's UNIA and the ways in which parades were significant with that. Um, but also this again is in Harlem, um, important civil rights protests. So the way of taking it to the street became an avenue of very explicit um, protest as well. Um, so we talked with the Cobras about the history um, of their performance medium, and then we started to work uh, very directly um, with uh, Terrell Stowers, who is the founding director of the Cobras, Kevin Young, who's the choreographer, um, and um, the Cobras themselves to sort of think through a performance. Um, we ended up, this was a rehearsal in the spring of 2017 in Marcus Garvey Park. One of the reasons we were interested in um, the park was to think about um, that as a public space in a black community. What did it mean to occupy that? And then what does it mean to sort of chore choreograph in a space that is part of the city? So the gridded structure, the organization of the city, but also allows for other kinds of movement um, and gathering. <clears throat> Uh, but Marcus Garvey also has a very interesting history, particularly around the drum circle. So it was already historically a site of performance, of gathering, um, but that was already controversial, as you could see here, with gentrification. Some people were not feeling the sound, shall we say. Um, and so um, with, with, that, with the arrival um, of, 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 I would say prim white, primarily white residents who were gentrifying Harlem, there was pushback on the drum circle. Um, but the drum, you know, the drummers stayed um, and have become an integral part of the landscape, precisely because they were an integral part of the landscape. So we were thinking about the changing landscapes of the city um, in that regard. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we rehearsed with them. Um, we worked with and, 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 and tried to understand like how do they move, what kinds of moves do they make, and to think about how, how would they occupy the park. And so we kept trying different locations to, to feel it out, and we landed in this area where um, they are uh, tables to meet, but also table, tables to play uh, games like chess and checkers, for example. The other thing that we were interested in the idea of performance is to think about how uh, marching bands, particularly black marching bands, organize space, movement, um, with various kinds of moves. We looked at HBCUs, for example, who carry on that legacy of performance from the 19th, early 20th century, to think about how that would translate into uh, the repetitions of the landscape. So we talked to them about like, how they start to see the city in certain ways around rhythm and repetition. Um, yeah, various kinds of, um, uh, of uh, movements and in, in synchronization um, we were interested in. Um, so again, you know, you see these kind of forms uh, translated, could be translated into architectural form in the city. Um, but we were interested in also the, the form of the performance in terms of costume, color, uh, that become these ways of enhancing uh, the, the organizations of the performance. Um, and so the, co the name of the Marching Cobras is not new. Uh, this was a group in uh, the 70s, but you could see the capes, the, you know, that there, were, there was a kind of 
way in which the architecture also becomes part of the clothing and its, its relationship to movement in, in space. Um, yeah, and so uh, that's Bryony on the left, and we worked, uh, they were really, they, had, they were really ecstatic about um, the idea of having a cape and how we would use it, and so we worked with them in various ways in which the cape would become a prop. I worked both with the dance line and the drum line, and so in the end, the performance, which takes place over about six minutes, and I'll show a video of it, um, uh, the dancers were all dressed as the Silent March, and so we worked with them, which they had not done with much more traditional formations of marching, which are much more syncopated and structured. Um, and, uh, and then the second part, they become um, the, the marching cobras. So you could see on the inside, the colorful, almost rainbow-like uh, uh, in, in, inside of the cape is the cobras. And so the drummers were all dressed as the um, Harlem Hellfighters. So they wore military fatigue and had these sort of capes. And we were interested in camouflage, um, how performance was a kind of camouflage for protest, um, but also this question of visibility and invisibility um, in the city. So, um, so this is the opening formation um, with, the, with the cobras. Um, this is the silent march. They, they, the dancers come in silently at first, which I will show you. Um, these are the drummers. Um, uh, how they sort of organize themselves in space and then sort of start to break out in the more cobra-like moves of um, dance, um, exuberant expression and the cape um, and the ways in which they march from the city and then back out into the city. Uh, the other thing that we had to do uh, as part of the project was an exhibition. And so uh, we did the, the exhibition at, at the storefront for art and architecture. These are the exterior walls, which were done originally by Vito Acconci and the architect Stephen Hall, which is always an interesting challenge. And so on the inside, we took the idea of the fabric, its dynamic sort of flowing form, almost flag-like, and sort of used it as an exhibition um, material. So photographs of the performers are there, but we also printed the history of performance and the parades, and there's a whole uh, historical part of the exhibition. And then, um, Within it are the various props of the performance itself. So yeah, so you could see how the history of the silent parade, they're all printed on the fabric um, as part of that. And then as part of the opening, the marching cobras came back and performed. And it's always interesting, you know, in terms of, again, the question of gentrification. We couldn't get a permit from the city because there were, again, noise complaints. Um, the concern about uh, five minutes of noise in the city, a very, very busy intersection at Kinmare and Lafayette. Um, so we did it anyway, um, and hoping the police would not shut us down. Uh, and to the extent they somewhat looked the other way, but by the end we had gathered a few cop cars um, toward the end of the performance. Um, but I think um, what was important for us was for the Cobras to really know and perform the history of their medium uh, and to think about various ways in which black bodies occupy space um, to both as a kind of form of cultural expression, but also a kind of implicit protest to the policing of black bodies in public space. So 
Next one's the video of the performance.
that was fantastic. Thank you, uh, Mabel, and also thank you, Emmanuel, for, uh, for your presentation. Um, I think we have some time. Uh, I'd like to ask maybe just a few questions, and then we'll open it up to the audience for some questions. Um, but I want to start with uh, something you reminded us of, Mabel, and that is that uh, following emancipation in, in, in the U.S., um, as blacks were denied the ability to own space, to own architecture, if you will, but also excluded from spaces. You know, during the Jim Crow era, blacks were excluded from museums um, you know, throughout the South, and, or there were subtle practices to exclude blacks from even museums in New York, such as decommissioning you know, art by, by black artists in order not to attract certain audiences. So then we have perhaps, let's say, um, the imaginary and these other forms of, of art, um, such as pageants or performances or parades, um, on the one hand, and I suppose um, thinking about the, the market or the mercado as a kind of place of performance as well, and now the legitimization of, of street traders. I, I wonder, given that the kind of art then that was produced from, let's say, conditions of being excluded or exclusivity, um, are there now sort of tensions when art enters the, black art in particular, enters the rarefied space of the museum or the, or the gallery? <laughs> wow, that's a, I don't know, that's a, that's a very challenging question. Um, I mean, I think so. I mean, it, it's, um, I mean, because I think people, you know, I'll speak from the perspective of the diaspora, the Middle Passage, even though people could not bring the materials um, that were local, um, but they, they could still bring memories of certain practices um, and then adapt them for you know, life in the new world, right, um, under enslavement. And so I think um, black peoples have always had a tradition of making that was able to translate into food, into music, into other kind of more ephemeral means. Um, and so there was always a tradition away from the museum of black creativity. Um, the question is what happens when it becomes institutionalized? And even with the invention of the kind of 19th century modern museum of, as, as a kind of collection, collecting apparatus both for private and public, um, there were still places in which black people made music, wrote music, performed music, um, made art, um, and made, made it visible outside of those dominant institutions. The question is what happens when those things merge? Um, and is there something that's lost? Are there things that are, gay, are, are gain? And how does it disrupt or even change kind of dominant institutions? I'm wondering, Emmanuel, um, relative to that question in terms of your, your own work and the installations that you've done in museums um, or, or galleries, the way in which your work enters, um, through what I would say are non-traditional modes of architectural representation, the, the, the flattened axonometric, the what um, is, an illustration is perhaps not the right word, but it's a different kind of, or different form of representation. Um, and you did mention, uh, you know, the desire for architecture to, um, or to make in a way that sort of decolonizes ways in which the continent has been um, 
conceptualize. So I'm, so I'm wondering, how are you seeing your practice perhaps in terms of that question of decolonizing the, the gallery or the museum when you enter, when your work enters the, the gallery or the museum? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's also a very difficult question for me. Um, mostly because I, I still think most of what I do is architecture of some form. And there have been some pieces that uh, we've collaborated on that ended up in exhibitions. But most of the frustration has been with the way architectural representation tends to sanitize the city. Like there are certain aspects of the city and certain bodies or certain activities that are left out of the drawings because there's this need to objectify the, the static form of the architecture. So when we started this research project, we were just looking at contemporary artists. We weren't even looking at architectural uh, drawings. Uh, so we were looking at um, painters like uh, Otto Bong uh, in Kanga and just the ways in which she collapses multiple histories and the contradiction is embedded in the work itself. Um, versus, you know, the types of drawings we've been trained to make, which are really about um, celebrating the, the object more than the activity. And I think a lot of the subversive acts, at least in Mercato and a lot of the spaces we're looking at, are coming from non-architects. And they are, in a way, reinscribing those spaces and giving them new meaning. So there needs to be a way to represent those and actually bring them into the architectural discourse so we can begin to somewhat destabilize the value system uh, of our discipline. Well, and, and I think the way that in which we've been taught to, to draw or represent architecture, um, you know, our sets, our sets of colonial yeah. practices, colonial drawings, the one-point perspective or the two-point perspective, the axonometric drawing, those are about sort of bringing things into some kind of European knowledge system. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I want to kind of continue along this line of, of thinking about decolonial or anti-colonial practices um, in that, and maybe go back to the question of performance, because I think now we also see a number of black artists whose practices are now engaging this question of performance. You know, so, you know, they're working multidisciplinarily, not only in terms of making painting or making sculpture, but I know, you know personally of a number of, of artists whose work now has sort of moved towards performance. Um, is that a desire to, to push back against the, the colonizing effects of the, of the institution? Either of you? And maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe Mabel, that's a question for you in terms of your work on performance. Museums like um, film and video um, as a way to think about space, which, uh, you know, are modes of representation. Perspe axonometric, for those of you who don't know, is a drawing that is not warped perspectively. So it actually produces an object. It's a very strange drawing. You've seen them, you just don't realize it. Like if you look at the, you know, sheet on an airplane, like evacuate, that's all axonometrically drawn. So there are ways of either objectifying or producing a particular way of looking. And, but they're static and they don't move. Drawings are not animated. Um, but at some point, we developed these tools of animation, right, through, through actually coming through film production. And so when architects had those tools, you know, I became interested in like, well, what is time? Like, how do we introduce time into space through architectural representation? So performance for me starts to fall into that. 
Um, but as soon as you temporalize something, you could see something change through time. And so like the work we've been doing with Global Africa Lab, which Mario co-directs with me, is to look at cities like Johannesburg and think about, you know, it was an apartheid city, it's a post-apartheid city, what has changed or not changed? And so forms of animation and video allow us to see those registers, right, to kind of see history as it performs. And I think that can be very powerful. Right, because it can also be a tool to then imagine what change will be in the future, right? Because you can project forward through animation as well. Um, I'm, I'm gonna ask one last question and then we'll open it up to the, to the audience. Um, and this might be a, you know, a really big question um, that of course is perhaps um, uh, not really an, an answer for. Um, but I wonder if we might also consider that, um, you know, in, in terms of thinking about, you know, the spaces that you were looking at, the Mercado or the space of the pageant or the parade or Marcus Garvey Park, you know, as a kind of local um, condition, um, black art also has, now has a kind of global presence. Um, and as, as I like to say, um, uh, African art is hot right now, right? Um, and so I, you know, I wonder um, also about, you know, perhaps the tensions between black artistic production um, and radical modes of representation. So um, uh, the, mar the marching cobras, the HBCU bands, the, the kind of space um, which is made, but also the embodiment that comes with that space and also in the, in the Mercado. So it's not just you know, uh, an image which is being uh, constructed. It's a subjectivity and an identity that's being constructed. Um, but then, let's say when art becomes globalized or, or part of this global market, um, a, a, again, there seems to me to be uh, maybe a set of contradictions there or, um, again, is there a way in which we can push back or should we expect art? Um, you know, art by black artists to engage in a kind of pushback or decolonial practice? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think through the Where's Africa project, um, one of the main ambitions behind the project was to understand how um, contemporary artists are dealing with this level of visibility that is beginning to elevate their work in a certain way, but also put them in positions that the work wasn't necessarily designed to be displayed in. Mm. And because almost all of them have a response for that question, like this is something that they're actively thinking about. Like, you know, basically there are film projects that, are, that were done by um, Adama Delphine Fawandu, for example, who's uh, one of the people we interviewed. And she basically said, none of these were really designed for exhibitions. They were designed for her to show her kids as like these rituals that she goes through on a daily basis, you know. She wanted to be able to film herself cleansing and like taking showers or cleaning her hair, etc. And at some point, the museum infrastructure gets interested in that work and it gets displayed a certain way. So a lot of her, her thinking right now through her practice is trying to insert a certain level of political uh, agenda within that context. So it needs to be somewhat disruptive. And I think all of these are ongoing experiments. It's hard to determine how to do them. 
but to me it was interesting to realize that all of these artists are coming up with their own methods of resisting against that infrastructure because even at, at RISD, the museum has had certain challenges when it comes to repatriation of African art. And the discourse around that alone is, is really, really evolving because it's not just about sending the objects back anymore. It's about training the people and building the institutions back in Africa. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers <laughs> the question, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the ways in which, um, you know, what would be called black art or, or, or black space um, that are constructed um, often aren't, yeah, you know, are sort of made for the everyday or made for certain social relations. And the ways in which institutions then incorporate them, try to write them into particular kinds of histories, displays, markets, and so forth, um, can often be at odds with the intention. Um, or, you know, I mean, some, you know, artists, you know, like if you think of David Hammond selling snowballs, right? <laughs> you know, he's very conscious of the art as object and market, you know, and, you know, and the ways in which it, it can be in market. So, you know, I think it just depends on the production. Um, in terms of the work that Brian and I did, I mean, this was, you know, we started the project before Beyonce did Coachella, and it was <laughs> Beychella. Um, but I think there was something that she was trying to do at that moment, which was like, okay, you know, this is, she made it into a black space around, you know, uh, um, homecoming and these celebratory events. You know, I mean, she really um, produced something quite unique that clearly has been co-opted <laughs> by others recently, as of last week, of people like Taylor Swift. So, so it's, it's very interesting um, to think about like how people try to resist, refuse, or sometimes work within these, these institutional structures with their work. So. Well, just to add to that, I mean, I think what MPO is able to do with African Wrong is I get to do a set of workshops throughout the continent. And I think even that as, as a response <laughs> to a call for curation is, is really interesting. All right, I think maybe we'll open it up um, for questions from the, from the audience. Well, thank you both, all, all three of you. This has been really um, interesting. I have a, it's, it's a set of three questions. You can choose which one you want to answer. Um, so you, what was mentioned was colonialism has used architecture and the built environment as a tool of control, Darwinism's um, linear evolution towards a westernized like idea of what the world should be. Um, and then building has been codified in a Western way with like, I, in, in my studies, I've seen like bungalows. I grew up in Uganda, so I grew up in a bungalow for 18 years and then realizing that it was a British reinvention of the um, Bengali building form. How do you see black people moving away from like the concept of the built environment is defined by colonialists in the past uh, and then do you have a vision of what that looks like and how does one start moving in the direction of a truly I guess African way of interacting with the environment in um, school I suppose or in like the academic sphere uh, yeah I mean I, that again that's a <laughs> 
I, I don't know if I have the answer for it, but one thing we've been thinking about lately is just the relationship that one has with the that colonialism made land measurable, but it also became this object that needs to be exploited and extracted from. And I think a lot of the, the, the societies that we're looking at, at least in Ethiopia and Tanzania, had a relationship with the land that was more in line with um, you know, a certain spirituality. Uh, so there's a connection with the land that is about taking care of the land and sharing the land. So unless we change that mindset and we move away from this extractive measurability, then it's going to be hard to invent a new type of architecture. But right now, everything is somewhat predetermined with a certain level of real estate speculation. And I think a lot of the work should be about searching for other value systems that exist outside of what we're trained to think. Yeah, I mean, I would add on to that. I mean, I'm... You know, I'm also a historian. I've been thinking a lot about this question of the measurability of land, um, which is how land was dispossessed. We're on the Lenape land right now, and so the way in which it was dispossessed was it was surveyed, right? And it was quantified, it was abstracted. Um, but the production of that abstraction produces particular kinds of subjectivity, right? Of citizen, of owner, um, that's hard to escape because it's now become universalized and almost global. And so I feel like we have to think otherwise and elsewhere. We have to start to produce and imagine other kinds of subjectivities and other places um, that are kind of outside that much more dominant Western formation um, because it fundamentally becomes then exploitive. Um, and so um, I, I think the project is to try to think through work and to also start to teach these. Um, and so some of the work that Maren and I have done with Global Africa Lab, I, I think addresses that. I don't know if you want to talk about some of the teaching you've done. Yeah, um, I mean, with Global Africa Lab, um, we've, we have an ongoing project called the Afro-Imaginary. Um, and I would say, on the one hand, it's not so much about reproducing or making, not reproducing, but producing, let's, let's say, new images of what architecture should look like, but rethinking the process, because I think the, the processes, as, you know, as we mentioned, are also European processes, colonial processes in terms of drawing, in terms of the perspective drawing, which, again, which is about sort of, uh, you know, this ideal subject you know, the Vitruvian man, who was never ideal and never universal, right, was exclusive. Um, so are there ways in which we can invent drawings, invent other ways of representation in order to open up the imaginary and to think about what, I won't say an African architecture, but what an Afri Afro-imaginary might be. And I, I was, want to be very careful and not even say an Afro-future, um, because that presupposes you know, a condition which is rooted in uh, European human thought, but to think about an imaginary. I mean, I think one other thing, you know, this comes out of Edwards, um, uh, a practice based on um, Edward Said, which he calls a, um, a kind of alternative reading of, of, of the text. It's an alternative reading of, of architecture. So understanding, for example, that certain architectures could not have been built without the extraction of African resources. And so reestablishing that value in terms of the, the primacy, if you will, um, for what architecture is, is also a kind of reordering of our, of our knowledge base. And I think that's also a, a, a part of, let's say, a, a, 
and Afro-imaginary, um, constructing this, this other way of seeing. Any other questions? Betty. Does it have to be a question? <laughs> no, thank you very much to all three of you. It's uh, an immense pleasure to be here uh, listening and sharing your work. I don't know if I have a question, but just appraisal and also some loose thoughts. I think it's very interesting to pair your work in such a different spatial, uh, geopolitical crossing of, of boundaries, but you know, addressing very similar issues of reclaiming and finding kind of a new language to, to work with. Um, so there's this dual process of reclaiming, registering, and, and discomfort. And one thing that came to, to mind as I listened to both of you is this, the discomfort that reclaiming um, causes, you know, especially in, in, in the performance and in sound and how sound versus noise and where that threshold between sound and noise because sound travels. So it's also a spatial practice in the sense that you begin to occupy other spaces uh, beyond that where you are creating that sound and it brings back to it as a language of communication uh, traditional in the African continent, if one could make that, that leap. And with Emmanuel's work in representation and kind of shifting all of these, for us who are trained as architects, shifting and creating somewhat of a beautiful discomfort, but the discomfort of, of reading this language of representation and, and these other reference systems uh, as a process of, of making and reclaiming even the architecture representation. So uh, those are just some, some thoughts that came to mind and thank you very much and I just wanted to share that. I don't know if I have a question, just keep going. <laughs> Any other questions? I think we have, we have time for, for maybe one more, one or two more. So I'd like to start off by saying I loved everything you all were saying. Um, so thank you for saying it. I know earlier, Emmanuel, you touched on how you wanted architecture to progress in a way where it doesn't have a post-colonial view, but it's also not this fantasized vision of what African architecture would look like. Do you all at the panel have a vision of what you would like architecture specifically on the continent to look like moving forward? I feel like it's harder to say what uh, we, like at least for me, it's harder to say what I would like it to look like, but I think it's easier for me to understand what I don't want it to look like. Um, and I think the tendency whenever we talk about quote unquote African architecture is to somewhat essentialize the whole continent and produce some sort of flattened view, right? Like there's some sort of pattern associated with the architecture or a material associated with the architecture. And I think a more interesting result would be to try to understand how each one of these um, cities are dealing with a set of constraints and through those constraints are inventing new types of architecture and hopefully are destabilizing our value system. So, I mean, I guess it's easier to design against 
than it is to design for. Um, and I think there's plenty to design against <laughs> on the continent. And, and through that, hopefully, we'll invent a new type of architecture. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, you know, having taught and thought through some of these issues, particularly around, you know, on the continent, one of the big issues around, you know, there, there was a legacy of colonial architecture, and you could see it in that photograph um, there. I mean, you could see the kind of legacy of colonialism, actually, in a lot of these photographs, in terms of how, um, you know, encampments, uh, colons, um, downtown were being imagined by different moments, right, of building. And right now, I think one of the things that are, that are happening is a kind of investment from two streams. One, as you, from China, um, that has its own sort of agenda, maybe even a kind of neo-colonial agenda around resource extraction. Um, and then the other one is a kind of Dubaiification of it. So you get these kind of crazy developments like Echo Atlantic in Lagos, right? Um, which is, well, we're having high-end hotels and you too can buy an apartment, you know, which in, in a lot of these projects are about kind of laundering money offshore and leaving a kind of residue of architecture that's glitzy, that is an image of a global city, as we've talked about in Mar and I run places like Johannesburg, but actually do not deal with the kind of realities of um, the kind of legacy of the previous waves of colonization um, that are not necessarily improving the lives of the people that are there and recognizing social formations, social spaces that can be enriched by recognizing kind of local, local ways of, 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 of building and inhabiting space by bringing in this kind of like global architecture that speaks to a, a global audience of elites. Yeah, and... Um... I mean, to my, to my point of view, uh, I mean, you know, as, as we know, the, the continent is extremely diverse ecologically, um, you know, environmentally, um, and what the sort of colonialists, you know, you know, their agenda was this agenda of extraction of resources. And that extraction of resources um, was to the detriment of the continent, but also now as we, as the world is, um, let's say, trying to deal with global warming and climate change, those issues, I, it goes back to, I won't say the original, but it goes back to that ex extraction of resources and the ways in which those resources have been, has been used by others. So to me, a, and this is not necessarily an image of what architecture on the continent should look like, but I wonder how architecture on the continent responds to the environment, to uh, different ecological systems, response to climate change. So what architecture then comes out of that as a response? Because I think, um, you know, the climate change and environmental issues will have the most, are having the most effect upon people of color around the world. So how then do we as people of color, in terms of the architecture which is produced, respond to that? And thereby, what kind of architecture does that um, does that become? You know, and just, just to add to that, I think it's, some of it is also just about valuing the architecture that's already on the continent. And I think, at least in the context of Dar es Salaam, there are incredible uh, structures that are just created from the hybridization that is caused by the Indian Ocean. And I think some of it is just saying, we have to go to those places and produce new archives where we value these structures and actually begin to learn from them. 
And I think you can almost say that about almost every African city. There are incredibly powerful pieces of architecture that haven't been valued that we need to start documenting. A Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in the rain. Thank you. Uh, thank you to, to everyone, uh, Mario, Mebo, and Emmanuel. Uh, our next panel will be at 1 p.m. Uh, it's on performativity and aesthetics. Um, and you're welcome to join us. We have, few, we have a few more events happening later in the afternoon. Uh, Zex Mda, a South African writer and painter, will be launching his uh, novel set in New York in the 1890s, um, as well as a film on Nora Chipaumire, uh, a dancer from Zimbabwe. Um, and lastly, there will be launch of a new book on Zimbabwean writers um, to close off the forum. Uh, Mario's book is available upstairs in the Aperture Pop-Up Bookshop, so you're welcome to get it and learn more about his thinking on uh, the work that he's doing. Uh, thank you, everyone.